This Dharma Talk by Joan Sutherland, Women's Domestic Zen, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on December 1st, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Um, for a, a brief time in my misspent youth, I stayed at Aichi Senmon Misodo, which is the in Nagoya, um, Japan. It's the, the head training convent for Soto Zen nuns in, in Japan. And um, it was an extraordinary place with an extraordinary group of women um, living and practicing there together in this beautiful traditional China, uh, Japanese-style temple in, in the hills above Nagoya. And um, the, the teacher there still is a, a remarkable woman I've, I've mentioned before occasionally named Aoyama Shundo, um, Blue Mountain Roshi. And um, I think some of you might remember a story I told about her that in, in Japan it's been traditional when a girl is born for her mother to begin sewing her wedding kimono as soon as she's born. And um, when it became clear that, that um, this was not in the cards for Aoyama Shundo, her wedding kimono was turned into the, the covers for the um, instruments in the zendo, the, music, the, the bells and the drums in the zendo. And it was quite, quite touching to see that. Anyway, so this, is, this was the place um, she live, lives and teaches. And um, um, during the time I was there, one weekend there was a gathering of lay women, and hundreds of um, Zen lay women came from all over Japan, converged on the temple, which was hosting this gathering of practice for them. Um, Aoyama Roshi felt really strongly that it was important to, for her to support the practice of women because they were supporting so many women in their, or so many other people some in, in their lives. So um, I, was, I was very happy and excited to see that uh, a scholar and academic called Paula Arai, who's a Japanese-American um, and whose field has been uh, Japanese women pra- women's practice has just published a book about those lay wo- those very lay women uh, the, associated with Aichi Semon Misoto and some of the nuns who are their teachers, and uh, I can just visualize them. You know, I can just see them so clearly who they are. And the book is called "Bringing Zen Home." Um, the healing heart of Japanese women's rituals. And um, as I was reading it, I, I realized I wanted to bring it into our conversation, this sort of loose, extended conversation we're having about um, reconciling dualities, because there's so much in their practice that is about exactly that. They see practice as healing. That's what it's for. It's for healing. And they have a very sophisticated and subtle understanding, both a diagnosis of what the problem is and a a sense of what healing means. And um, I was struck by how much what they have developed, and this is very much something they've developed themselves in their own lives in sort of collaboration with each other and, and with some guidance from the nuns of, um, of this convent. 
um, so much of what they have developed is so congruent with the kind of ways we're thinking about um, the way and practice here. So um, just, if you will, sit back and let the stories of these women wash over you. And then I would be interested to hear what you think about the, the, both the congruences and the, the differences in their, their lives and ours, our cousins across the Pacific Ocean. One of the uh, apparent dualities, or one of the complementary dualities that, that struck me as I was reading the book is that um, Koan's sense that, that you, there are a couple of fundamental attitudes we can take in, in, in life and in our practice, and, and those are of the host and the guest. And there are a lot of levels to host and guest, but one of them is, um, for example, we talked a, a few weeks ago about how um, pilgrims who go on these, who have traditionally gone on these pilgrimages from temple to temple and studied in all these places, are kind of archetypally taking the role of the guest. They're the wanderer, the, per, the transient, the person who comes and um, stays a while and takes what there is to take as teachings and wanders off. And um, in, uh, in East Asia, they're called clouds and water because there's that quality of movement all the time. And in contrast to them, the teachers whom they are visiting are um, taking the role of host. They are welcoming whoever comes into their place, and they often have mountain in their name. So you have this this relationship between clouds and water and and mountains. And in that place where... um, it's, it, it comes to be realized that host and guest are the same thing. When, when that conversation deepens and you drop down out of the apparent duality and see the identity of host and guest, that's, those are the moments when awakening blooms. So these women um, are so much acting as hosts in their life. That's their, their position. Uh, and some of that is by choice, and some of that is uh, probably due to the, the, the ferocious norms of Japanese culture, um, which are still quite strong. I have a um, friend in, in Japan who is an elder sister and has a younger sister, and it was amazing to see how their lives, these two sisters' lives, were entirely shaped by the accident of birth order. My friend, being the older daughter, lived her whole life knowing that she was going to end up taking care of the parents, you know, her parents and perhaps her husband's parents, and, and lived her whole life in preparation for that, got a good education, got a good job, provided a house, um, had kids, did the whole thing so, so that that could happen. And her younger sister, who was absolutely and unequivocally free of those obligations, went off to India and became an artist and took a Hindi name and had this completely other bohemian life just because one was the older sister and one was the younger sister. So those, um, those norms are very strong in, in Japanese culture. And, and as I was reading the book, I could feel the, 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 the operation of them um, in these women's lives. So they um, were of the generation, they are of my generation, many of you in this room's generation, where they're um, tending to children and grandchildren 
and um, parents, and if they're married, in-laws. Some are, some, most were married, some were single. The married women all had children. None of the single women did. And most of them worked outside the house. Um, so they, they, they took care of their families, and they also took care of their family altars. In, in the heart of every Zen home in Japan is this ancestor's altar. And often, um, actually, you would have the husband's altar. And so now the custom is that um, the women set up their own altars for their families as well. So you've got sort of two things going on. And they take care of those altars, and they take care of the ancestors. They do all the stuff that's necessary to, to, to tend to the ancestors as well. So they're sort of taking care of the seen and unseen, you know, in their families. Um, they support each other in in their practices, and um, so so here they are hosting and hosting and hosting. And, and it occurred to me as I was reading the book that one of the really beautiful things that practice offers them in a lot of different ways on a lot of different levels is the chance to be a guest. And it made me realize how important being able to be a guest sometimes is, how really crucial it is. So I wanted to just give you a, a sense of what these oases of being a guest in these vast landscapes of hosting were like for these women. Um, and it seemed particularly important because uh, th this was a generation of women who lived through World War II, and, or were born shortly thereafter. And all of them had seen really serious trauma in their lives. There were murders and suicides and abandoned children and starvation and you know all kinds of, of serious illness in, in their lives and the lives of, of their families. And, um, and Paula Arai mentions that as she's speaking with them, she realizes that almost no one has ever asked them to tell those stories, that they've almost never spoken about those things. And so um, in a culture that doesn't, um, that stigmatizes mental illness where there is no tradition of psychotherapy at all, there's no one to talk to in that way, um, having these places in their practice where they could be guests became tremendously important. And um, perhaps it's not surprising, as I mentioned, that for them the focus of practice is, is healing. And I'll talk in a little bit about what healing means to them. Uh, okay, so uh, I mentioned um, the the taking care of their altars on their uh, in their family homes, and in their um, in their worldview, everything and everyone is a Buddha. Everything has Buddha nature. Everything is Buddha nature. And your dead ancestors become your personal Buddhas. That's what they call them, personal Buddhas. And that there's a very strong connection to them. And there's very much a feeling of being um, accepted by them. So that when they do these, when they chant in front of the altar, when they take care of the altar and make the offerings and do the ceremonies, uh, there is also a sense that they can relax and lean into their ancestors and that their ancestors will just uh, accept them however they are and whatever's going on in their lives. So, um, 
one of the one of the women who's actually a nun at, at the convent says it's not it's not a uh, it's not a like a worship in, in any way of ancestors and it's not a sort of abdicating of responsibility to them she says Gyoko uh, sensei says I don't feel that they'll just take care of my problems I feel that they will look with warm affection and that's really all they're asking for is for someone to look with warm affection while they figure out their problems I do pray they help things go in a good direction and um, there's another woman, um, Honda-san, in the book, who follows the Japanese tradition. When you, when you live with other people, when, every time you come home, you, you announce as you're taking your shoes off, um, I'm home. But it's home not just in the sense of the place I happen to be living right now, but home in the sense of you know the, where I am home in the world, the place of my heart. And um, the, anyone who's in the house shouts back, your homecoming is welcomed. And that's, you know, that's quite common in, in, in Japan. Um, but Honda-sensei lived, son lived alone. And still, every time she came home, she would say, I'm home. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Paula Rai talks about realizing that she's talking to the ancestors, she's talking to her personal Buddhas, and that in her own heart-mind, she heard that reply, your homecoming is welcomed every single time. So that was a place they got to be a guest. Um, another was with the, the, the nuns at the convent who, who some of them took as their teachers. And there was one description of, of a woman's feeling about one of the nuns that I thought was, um, was so beautiful and, and um, worth a look at. She, she would go once a month to do a calligraphy with this nun whose name was um, Kito Sensei. And this is, how, this is how this woman describes her experience of Kito-sensei. As each person approaches individually, Kito-sensei sees and listens to what she has brought with her in her heart-mind. Few people discuss matters explicitly or with any depth. Silence is everywhere and everyone respects it. It is rather an approval implicit in the air. By being completely present with you, she affirms and embraces your whole being with no um, judgment and no hesitation. You feel seen, understood, and accepted. As Honda-san puts it, I go to scripture copying because for that time, that one hour, once a month, I feel understood. It is due to Kito-sensei's presence. Um, so... There's that there's that um, that sense of being able to be, to relax and to be seen to be a guest when they're with the nuns. Uh, another another place they have it is in relationship to Kanon Kanzeon, who is the which is the Japanese way of pronouncing the word that's pronounced Guanyin in Chinese. So the Bodhisattva of compassion, and they have a very strong connection, even though um, Guanyin. Um, shapeshifts as she moves around the world and, and changes gender in some places she's masculine and some feminine and some androgynous in Japan most of the images are um, pretty androgynous and, and uh, Kanon is usually, usually re- um, referred to as he but for, the, for them she's a she there's no question about that and their relationship to her is as feminine and um, just, just so you know for the, um, there's a, there's a 
a chant that they use a lot in, in, in moments of crisis, which is Nempi Kano Riki, which is um, I call on the power of Guanyin. Uh, I bring, I invoke the power of Guanyin. I believe in the power of Guanyin. And they talk about how they, um, that happens, to, you know, they use that all the time. And, and in moments of crisis, they just begin chanting Nempi Kano Riki. Um, and then one woman describes a moment of, of understanding she had about Kanon. When I was riding my bike on a cold day in February with snow falling, I saw the bud of a plum blossom. I thought of all the energy the bud was exerting to bloom even in winter. It is not just the energy of the bud, it is the energy of the universe working to bloom this flower. The world is working so hard to activate this flower, and it is working for me too. At that instant, I felt embraced by that energy. The Kanon Sutra says that there is this power that holds you. This is it, Kanon Riki, compassion power. There is a huge power in the universe that aims to make flowers blossom. And then the last place where um, women can be guests in this practice of what Paula Arai calls domestic Zen, um, and which one of the women defines as healing in the midst of a mess. (laughs) Which I thought was great. Can you relate? Domestic Zen, healing in the midst of a mess. Anyway, so so another place that that they can find... um, they can find uh, this this feeling of um, of relaxation is is um, in silence is in a connection to the vastness and that shows that all these small ways of relaxing of feeling accepted are actually this very deep movement of falling into the vastness and understanding one's um, that one is held in that that one is part of that. So uh, Yamamoto-san is talking about uh, tea, about, about the, the ritual of making tea for each other and the silence that's part of that. <coughs> silence is treasured because it embraces you and supports you in the deepest and weakest places. Isn't that great? It's that consciousness in, in the deepest and weakest places. Such a different feeling about silence. Silence has a kind of presence rather than an absence, not the absence of noise or conversation, but the presence of this thing that um, supports you in the deepest and weakest places. It is safe to be just as you are in the silence. You are accepted as you are. You are protected and cared for. Your deepest needs are understood and met. Um, so, so here are these women doing domestic Zen healing in the midst of a mess. And one of the things they don't do hardly at all is meditate. Meditation is just not part of their practice. And instead they're doing the, these other things I've been talking about. They're, they're doing things at the family altar. They're doing a lot of chanting. They copy sutras. Um, they copy images of um, Kanon and, and other figures like that. They do what they call polishing the heart-mind, which is as they're going about their 
um, cleaning tasks. They think that everything they're doing to clean is, is, a, is a way of cleaning the heart-mind. Um, they're doing things like, like uh, doctoring their, their um, families. They, they, take, um, they write out sacred symbols in a sort of esoteric tradition, and then they actually eat the paper that the symbol is written on. And they um, drink a, a kind of water that's drawn from a sacred um, source at, at certain times of the year, and they mix that in with tea if someone's coming down with a cold or feeling blue. They'll throw a little um, musicorium into the tea. Uh, let me see if I can find... one brief little description of that. Um, so, so Paula Arai says, um, the types of practices found in domestic Zen are done amidst the sounds of water running for the laundry, dishes, and baths. They are done with the aroma of food cooking and incense burning. Adding misutori, that, that sacred water, to the rice um, the family will eat for dinner is seen as much of a key ingredient in nurturing the family as our soy sauce and seasoning. It is because these practices are woven into the demands of daily family life that they are practical and effective. And she talks about one woman who's in the middle of doing this sort of elaborate chanting service in front of the family altar, and in the middle of it just sort of turns her head around and says, Frank, don't forget to take out the garbage, and then goes back to the chant. <laughs> that's, um, that's the way it's done. So they... Um, they do art, kind of traditional Japanese art, like tea and flower arranging. And uh, there's a sense that, that it, it, it is now in many Japanese homes, the women who go to the temples and then bring back the blessings for the family and spread them around in the family. Okay, so here is this sort of nitty-gritty, um, very domestic, very daily practice Quite different from ours in, in that there is no meditation, but all these other other ceremonies and rituals going on. And here's here's how they see things. This is how they understand why they're doing all this and why it matters. I, I mentioned that they see the, the the purpose of their practice as healing, and um, they talk about okay, so what's the problem that we're that we're healing? They see suffering as the delusion that we are separate and alone and unsupported. That that is the fundamental delusion of suffering. We are separate, alone, and unsupported. And healing comes when we find a sense of peace that doesn't shatter in the face of either difficult events, things that happen in, in the outer world, or delusional thoughts and activities. A peace that doesn't shatter in the face of our own delusional thoughts and activities. Um, and that peace comes from a deep, heartfelt body sense that um, we are all integral to this vast interrelated network of everything that is in the universe. So integral to it, not just part of it. And I thought that was a really important word. It's not just that we're part of it, but we're integral to it. Without each person without each thing, without each being in the world, that network would be different. That vast interest net wouldn't be the same. 
So, so healing is to really know deeply in your heart, your mind, your body, your spirit, that you are integral to that Indra's net. And that compassionate support is running all the time through that network. You are receiving it for sure, and you're also giving it. So there's this constant circulation, this constant exchange of compassionate support. Um, so someone, one of the women says, to be embraced is to be healed. That sense of knowing that you are integral to this interrelated net that is the universe. Um, another, another aspect of healing they speak of as a retraining of yourself to act in harmony with the way things are. And the way things are is both interrelated, as we've been talking about, and impermanent. So healing is a way of holding your heart-mind, they call it. Um, it's it's um, a kind of art, they think, to seek out ways to heal and not to suffer. And one of the th- things, the practices they talk about is choosing to be grateful in the face of fear-driven and torment-ridden possibilities. So, now, see if this sounds at all familiar to any of you who have been hanging out here for a while. They, they think of what they're doing um, not as a delineated course of um, behavior. There isn't a recipe, there isn't a book. Um, there isn't a, the, things aren't laid out in outline form. It's more an orientation to living, a certain orientation to living. And so they see their, their practices as, as consisting of guidelines rather than absolutes. And um, only in hindsight, and only when Paula or I would ask them questions, could they see a consistent set of values and attitudes and activities that as a whole constituted a way. So not, not only we are um, improvising moment by moment in what we're doing, and um, I, I found that quite lovely to think that there, there are um, people all over the world making it up as we go along. Um, also, I, I, I noticed in what they were saying that the contrast they set up is not between uh, suffering and not suffering, which I think we in the West we kind of do a lot. It's the, the, those are the choices: you either suffer, or you don't suffer. For them, the contrast is between suffering and healing, mm-hmm. and that felt very important. That that um, healing is a process. Heal, I mean, healing is a way of life. Healing is something that goes on and on and on. Healing isn't a sort of one-time event that marks before and after. And um, as a matter of fact, when, when, um, when Paula or I started asking them about healing, she, she first asked them in a, in a verb tense in Japanese that would translate as, have you ever experienced a healing? And they all just looked at her like, huh? And then she changed tenses to what she calls the gratitude tense, so that the question became something like, have you ever been the grateful recipient of a healing? And they all said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they, and that, was where, that was how they thought of healing, that it wasn't an event that happened individually. You know, yes, I, exp- I experienced a healing. But it was that they had received this healing, and the sense was that it came from this whole vast interrelated uh, network, 
that that's what that was the source of it, not as not themselves, but but the universe itself. Um, okay, so um, when when they pray, then they see prayer as a request that they're kind of sending out into this net of interconnectedness, of interrelationship. Uh, so it's not addressed to a specific figure. You don't, you don't pray to one of the bodhisattvas or something like that. You, you just release it into this, into this network. And you know you're going to be heard because of that interconnection. You know, it's impossible that you would not be heard because it's all connected. And this is, and this is what leads to the sense of the healing quality of prayer. And at the same time that you are praying and sending your requests out into the network, the, the other side of that is you are happily obligated to listen carefully for the prayers of others. And um, there's a way in which these women talk about, in each interaction, trying to hear the prayer underneath whatever's happening. Trying to hear, in each interaction, what is this person's unspoken prayer, can I hear it? What is your prayer? They're asking over and over again. And they have a very strong sense that when they are doing that, they are Guanyin, they are embodying Kanon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, who is the one who hears the world, right? Hears the sounds of the world. Um, so, the sense that, that healing is a process. Healing is something that, an art, healing is something that you spend your whole life doing. It means, for example, that to heal from grief for them doesn't mean that grief will stop. It's not the cure of grief. It's that um, you have come to prepare, be able to prepare yourself for what they call the seasons of grief. It will be like this now, and then it will become like this, and then it will be like this. Um, and so you you live, you understand that if healing is, if grief is a process, the healing of grief is a process. Life is a process of coming to try to see and understand the seasons of of grief or any other strong feeling, and um, and and come into harmony with that. So. In the, in the perspective of interrelatedness they have and in the perspective of everything being Buddha, that means even something like sickness is a Buddha. Not metaphorically, I mean, it's re, you know, sickness is really, really a Buddha. And they, they say, um, we have to live with what is happening now. We can't live later. <laughs> and we can't force life to be a certain way. So if if the present Buddha is is um, sick Buddha, that's the Buddha we live with. And they talk about um, developing a, a relationship with illness they, uh, in a way. They use a, a verb that is used to talk about people who are quite close in their friendships. When you have a friendship where you you sort of drop away formalities and you have an easy casual comfort with each other. The verb that describes that kind of friendship is the verb they used to describe their relationship with illness. And I thought, of course, of how many times we talk about intimacy. We talk about 
finding um, intimacy with whatever is happening, and that seemed to be a very similar kind of thing. Um, so then it makes sense to try to be kind to the illness, which might mean resting when your body is tired, or not eating food that aggravates it, you know, not doing those things that make it worse. And that, that's their sense of being, um, being kind to the illness. And all of this arises out of a sense that um, Kanon's heart, the heart of the embodiment of compassion, is the heart that accepts everything. Um, And if we want to develop Kanon's heart for ourselves, a heart that can accept everything, we have to first um, be aware of not exhausting our heart. So we need to um, allow them to relax and to let things in. Um, Letting things in, accepting everything for them is a matter of growing the heart bigger so everything can fit. So how big is your heart? Big enough for everything to fit. That's the answer. Um, One of the nuns, Gyoko Sensei, says, with Kanzayun, you see the world not through, the, through your eyes, but through your heart-mind. Everything appears differently. Look deep from the heart-mind. All things in the universe communicate through the heart-mind. So that sense that when we are seeing and hearing with our heart-minds, we then see and hear the heart-minds of everything else. And then we, we go back to that question which seems perfect in that instance, what is your prayer? Um, When they talk about this permitting and allowing, they use a a word that we usually translate as, as to forgive, which is interesting because they're saying this is a practice of making your heart mind big enough to include everything, even the things you think are wrong and don't like. That, that you, and those things you forgive um, even if you don't agree with it even, even if you don't like it um, you don't turn it away and that of course made me think of um, our koan when my mind doesn't arise all things are blameless and, and then um, lastly Uh, they have a sense that if you don't the, the, the alternative to that if you don't do that what happens is that negativity builds up walls and appears to separate that which is naturally interrelated so that's the problem with negativity that's the problem with judgment that's the problem with um, a blaming, you know, w- with not accepting, with uh, picking and choosing and all that stuff, is that it, it puts a wall between you and everything else, um, blocking and damning that which is naturally interrelated. And that creates an inherent strain, not just on yourself, but on the network, on the net as a whole. You, you're making strain. Um, and that if you, to maintain that rejection of something, 
to maintain that wall takes a tremendous amount of energy, drains energy away from other things. And that's something we've talked a lot about. What could you do with all that energy that you would liberate if you stopped judging things? Um, we could. We wouldn't even have to worry about solar power anymore. We could run the world on our <laughs> released judgment. Um, and then they have a sense that if, and that if you leave negativity for too long, it either festers. It was great. They had two images. It either festers or it calcifies. So it either sort of rots, you know, and stinks, or it calcifies. It gets hard um, and calcifies into bitterness, they say. So again, um, Gyoko Sensei says, it's really about how much you are in touch with the power of boundlessness. If you are sincere and unobstructive, I think that's a great goal. I think we should all try to be unobstructive. <laughs> Not calculating gain and loss and letting things flow like a stream. Then forgiveness and allowing room for things occurs. Depending on the matter at hand, you can forgive or make room for something by responding with silence. So in other words, you don't have to pretend to like something you don't like. You can respond with silence. But it is important not to turn anger in on yourself. As you forgive and make room for, your heart melts. So um, here are these women, in some ways, living very different lives than we live um, absolutely committed to developing the heart-mind of Kanzeon, of Kanon, in themselves. Uh, absolutely committed to healing whatever creates tears in the fabric of that inner relationship, either inside themselves or in relationships with other beings. Um, committed to extending the conditions for others to allow them to heal. Family, the women they practice with in their communities, people they work with. Um, very simple. I think about Vimalakirti's house with its uh, astonishing collection of miracles, but if you walked by it from the outside, you would never know what was going on inside. You know, I think of that in relationship with these women. Um, women stained and died by life. Women completely in life and, and completely committed to healing themselves and those around them and their world to the extent that they can. And I find myself um, quite moved by them and um, wanting, to, wanting to learn what it's possible to learn from them. And I just wanted to close by telling you of a ceremony they do, which I had n never heard of. I don't think it's ever been um, spoken about before in, in, in the West, and I don't think much in Japan, but it was such, a, such an interesting thing that, that um, I thought you might enjoy it. There's a group of women who get together once a month, and they have a giant mala, giant like this, um, except it would fill the whole room. It's 108 baseball size beads with one um, softball size counting bead, and it's in a circle, you know, in the middle of them. 
and they begin by doing some chanting, and then sometimes uh, one of the women will suddenly sort of go over, and her, and her head will go down to the ground, and she'll come back up, and she'll begin to speak. And she's actually, um, she's channeling, and she's channeling teachings from Kanzeon, <laughs> or one of the other Bodhisattvas, or Shakyamuni. And, um, and the, Paula Arai describes being present at one of these in this, in this very quiet, reticent, um, humble woman is the one who goes over and comes back up and does sort of 20 minutes of these uh, kind of astonishing teachings. And then when it's over, she kind of blinks and blushes and goes back to being quiet and unassuming, you know. Um, and then everybody goes, thanks, that was great. <laughs> and then they begin this, this practice of passing this giant mala around uh, from hand to hand to hand while they're chanting. And it goes on for an hour. It starts out fairly slow, but as the hour goes on, they pick up speed so that this thing is now whipping around the room and everybody's chanting at this ferocious speed. And it requires incredible concentration because if you miss or, or lapse, you know, it's the whole, you're going to mess the whole thing up. And, um, and everybody's watching everybody else so that if somebody has to wipe their brow or, or change their position, everybody else compensates for it. And they keep this, this fast thing going on for an hour, and then they stop. And that's it. And they batter each other and they go home. Um, and I love that. I love that. I, I, if anybody feels like constructing a <laughs> giant mala <laughs> with them, we might, we, might, uh, we might play with that and see what happens. So anyway, I'll stop there. Um, but would welcome any, any comments or questions you have. How does, how, how does all of this strike you? This is uh, maybe different than what we usually kind of do here. <laughs> it's it's very moving and touching to hear. Good. Yeah. Any idea what those beads are made of? There's a there's actually a photograph in the book, I think. But wood, I think, pretty sure. But it must be fairly light wood, I, I imagine. And when I talk about the ancestors, um, are they the Relatives or yeah, <coughs> not teaching ancestors. Yeah, yeah, they're they're um, biological or adopted relatives. Yeah. And what did you say about illness? It was sort of near the end about illness. It wasn't that they something about not accepting illness but seeing it as part of the Buddha. The the that yeah, illness is a Buddha, and that they 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 develop this kind of friendly relationship with it, right? Yeah, and 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 that it's very important to, um, to to treat it with friendliness, which means kind of taking care of yourself. If right. if uh, the the illness Buddha is in residence, <laughs> it, it has that quality of being extremely subversive in the sense of like it's extremely ordinary. Like I, I would imagine from the outside, you wouldn't see a lot of this happening, it would look like rote ritual or you just, but it seems like it's a very, very deep practice. Yeah. It's very ordinary. That's what, exactly what I love about it. It's very, or it's, 
feeling in the middle of a mess and, and very deep and and, and, and not separating yourself from the mess, you're still cleaning up the dishes yeah. and yeah. Um, Yes, I mean, and you can you can feel it as they as they speak about how they understand things. They are coming to the same conclusions that people who meditate, mm-hmm. in a more formal sense, come to. You know, it's the same. Yeah, the universe looks the same. And the way that they meet is that once a month. The to do the yeah to do the passing around of the or see each other at yeah. the temple. Or yeah. That's the only formal. Um, or are they seeing each other in another way? They're seeing each other in other ways. They go to the convent to do to do oh. both public ceremonies and to do things like the scripture copying. Right. Yeah. So they're kind of they're bumping into each other mm-hmm. in different ways all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it seems like they're each operating kind of independently and uniquely and actually really living with that inter, integral, interconnected way, <coughs> kind of coming to these incredibly sublime voices, but it's not as if they're receiving a teaching and taking it in, or memorizing it, or studying it, or anything like that. It's really pretty remarkable, actually. It is. They do, they do read, and they do study. I mean, they do, they, they, they study the tradition um, to, to, to some extent, and they go to hear Ayama Roshi's Dharma talk. So they, they do have that kind of formal element in their practice, but the voices are so individual, you can just tell that they're completely digested through each, each individual woman. Yeah. spiritual practice mostly yeah it's mostly not not happening or they're doing what I think what it also tells us Diana is is like we have this stereotype of what Zen is which is based on this monastic model you know and right and so that's what if they're doing anything they're doing that and here's this whole other thing going on yeah parallel which in fact we strive to have which in fact is so much closer to what we're trying to do yeah And isn't this the primary mode that's actually open to women, that was open to women mm-hmm. in that culture? You know, the monastic life was not really open to women. The, it was, yeah, although um, to a lesser degree, but I mean, you could, but you would, you would have to make the commitment to become a nun. And I think what's so 
revolutionary about this is that you, these are lay women. Yeah. yeah. Is this all over Japan? Um, I would imagine it's all over Japan, but I think Aichi Senwon Nisodo, I think this convent is a very power. I mean, having been there, I've felt it. A very powerful place, and I can, and Aoyama Roshi is a very powerful teacher, and I can just imagine that there, that's a kind of, you know, buzzing locus of, of, of activity. I've heard it's very common in South Korea, in a way, that um, there's this Dr. Tintin, she's a teacher in California, um, who's written a little book about that, but basically she says this is the most common form of meditation over there. The kinds of meditations that's coming, the practices from the East that have come to this country are mostly the monastic, formal, I think that's that's true, really true, and and um, it, it, yeah, it's a it's a funny distortion of the way we re- receive the traditions from Asia. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so that actually, if they uh, preceded us, um, and provide a kind of model for us, it's really not going to shape the field that we're part of. Mm-hmm. And actually, think of that network, that web of compassion, being another way of thinking about the field. That's actually how it works. That's how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the basis of a lot of indigenous spirituality, too. Just the sense that the sacred is not separate from life. Mm-hmm. You don't have to close your eyes and still you can be in life and be practicing. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's where it lives. Yeah. So does this have to exclude men? I mean, I'm really curious about how men feel because we're here. I, I wouldn't see why it yeah, yeah, I mean, was not yeah, couldn't it be more so? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In, in indigenous cultures did it? No. Yeah. Everything's evolved. And it still seems specific to the way cultures work when we're working cultures. So I'm guessing it's happening all over, yeah. And I think it's more a matter of how much reporting of it there is, how much, you know, how, how visible it is. But I think it's probably happening all over, yeah. Hope so. Huh? It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you said um, the uh, healing in the midst of a mess, I just heard one clowns and author say that there's an awakening going on of the planet in the midst of um, a garbage dump. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. <laughs> Anything else before we close? I guess in terms of what you were asking about, about why the women, you know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about, you know, being in Italy and how churches are all old women. Yeah, churches. And, and um, if there's something about, you know, different times for different cycles and that that um, relationship was sort of denied women in a certain way culturally, and so there's like this excited embracing of needing that and maybe, you know, in the male side there there's a little bit of a different time around it where, you know, that cycle was more lived and there's a, a time of something else being more prominent. Mm. That's interesting, yeah. Anything else? Well, I'm just thinking if you can feel in this area, we really do live in a field of indigenous ritual. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't come into our lives. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, going to Christmas dances, which I try to do every year mm-hmm. in Pueblos, and then that's where I can touch that net. So whatever you, you know, whatever the politics are or any of that, it's still there in the pueblos. And so we have it. We don't usually connect to it. But it seems like another version of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Thank you all very much. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.